Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with yesterday's madcap hearing by the new Republican House Oversight Committee focusing on Hunter Biden, then today's even more ludicrous hearing by Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee on the weaponization of government. Joining us is Andrew Feinberg, the White House correspondent for The Independent, where his latest articles are GOP airs grievances at bizarre Twitter hearing and Trump paid himself almost $1 million from donors since leaving White House. Then we'll investigate the spiking of a story on the Nation magazine's publisher's pro-Putin bias by the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, Kyle Pope, who is now embroiled in a controversy having published an article by Jeff Gerth that furthered the theory William Barr and John Durham have demonstrably failed to prove. Joining us is the author of the article on the nation's Russia coverage that was killed, Duncan Campbell, an investigative journalist, author, consultant and television producer specialising in privacy, civil liberties and surveillance issues, a recognised forensic expert witness on computers and communication data, He's provided specialist testimony in over 100 criminal and civil cases and has given evidence to the House of Commons and the European Parliament on surveillance legislation. His best-known investigations led to major legal clashes with successive British governments, and he is the author of a number of books, including War Plan UK, The Unsinkable Aircraft Carrier, On the Record, Interception Capabilities 2000, and his latest, The World Under Surveillance. Then finally, we'll look into what the Pentagon means when it says the new deal with the Philippines is, quote, for spaces, not bases, when the U.S. already has 750 bases worldwide in 80 countries, with 313 in the Asia-Pacific region. Joining us is David Vine, a professor of anthropology at American University and the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World, Island of Shame, the Secret History of the U.S. Military Base at Diego Garcia, and most recently, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, now out in paperback. He is a contributor to the blog OverseasBases.net and is a member of the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition, where there is a new report, Why New U.S. Military Bases in the Philippines Are a Bad Idea. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Andrew Feinberg, who is the White House correspondent for The Independent, whose latest articles are GOP as grievances at bizarre Twitter hearing and Trump paid himself almost $1 million from donors since leaving White House. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Feinberg. Thanks for having me. So, Andrew, on Wednesday morning, just after the State of the Union, of course, there was the hearing by the House Oversight Committee 
you describe it as a madcap hearing. But I think to some extent, maybe it was trumped today by the hearing by Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee on or subcommittee on the so-called weaponization of the government. So was one madder than the other, or were they both madcap? I think uh, both of the hearings were, were equally uh, uh, madcap, as you put it, uh, in their own way. Uh, yesterday, in, in oversight, you had uh, a panel of uh, several witnesses who used to work at Twitter, none of whom currently work at Twitter, and yet were being asked to account for uh, some of the company's uh, more recent actions, as well as things that happened uh, two years ago, three years ago, uh, during uh, the 2020 election and, and afterwards. Uh, at one point, you had uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, screaming at these witnesses about how she wasn't going to ask them questions. She was just going to talk at them and not let them talk because they had censored her uh, by suspending uh, her, her personal Twitter account. And she went on this bizarre rant where she brought up one of the witnesses' uh, master's, uh, or sorry, doctoral dissertation at, uh, at UPenn uh, that QAnon people have obsessed over and conclude the rant with, uh, oh, and by the way, I'm a member of Congress and you are not, uh, to which if, if I had been on the panel, my response probably would have been, and thank God for that, uh, that I'm not a member of Congress, uh, especially one on that that, that uh, committee, because it, it was just crazy and grievance-filled. This is uh, a non-issue. It was a, the, the reason for the hearing is you had, a decision to temporarily restrict distribution of an unflattering article about Hunter Biden that Republicans have been convinced would have somehow swung the election had more people been able to share it on Twitter. It makes no sense. But specifically, just to follow up on Marjorie Taylor Greene's attacking the witness, former employee of Twitter, Yoel Roth, he had a falling out with Musk, who spent $44 billion to essentially own the libs. Musk had promoted this QAnon conspiracy theory that accused Yoel Roth of supporting pedophilia. And that's apparently what Marjorie Taylor Greene brought up. And she harangued him and brought up that smear and then gave him no chance to correct the record. Right. And uh, it's, it's worth noting that uh, Mr. Roth uh, had to sell his house uh, because he went on people uh, were were posting his uh, his home address online and uh, his family had to flee because they were being uh, targeted with death threats which uh, frankly is really a common outcome anytime you uh, you get on the bad side of uh, prominent republicans prominent trump supporters or uh, really any supporters of, of Elon Musk uh, these days, uh, they all have rabid cult followings who like to threaten people. Well, there's something about Musk smearing people for being pedophiles. He did that with the the people that rescued those kids in Thailand from the cave. So about which a movie? Oh yeah, I'd right. forgotten. I'd forgotten about that. Um, so there's there's a pattern. 
Right. But it's it's still it's disturbing, you know, no matter how you slice it. So, at the risk of of trying to make sense out of out of insanity, what is going on with this October twenty twenty New York Post story that the Republicans feel that Twitter somehow blocked the distribution of in order to help Hunter Biden and supposedly it it had the smoking gun of uh, email messages from Hunter Biden to executives at it, it Ukrainian was, gas uh, company. It, it was allegedly a, an email from an executive at this at this gas company, uh, Burisma, uh, to uh, Hunter Biden saying, uh, thank you for... Um, for arranging an introduction uh, to your to your father, um, arranging, you know, not there was no you know, meeting with the guy on Joe Biden's official schedules, uh, but it, it sounds like what it was was a a, a drop in, a, a quick handshake, you know, at an event, and the guy was writing like, hey, thank you for uh, getting me a chance to you know meet your dad, who happens to be the vice president of the United States. Uh, seems like a polite thing to do, write a thank you note. But uh, this was an issue because uh, Joe Biden had said during the campaign that he never discussed uh, his son's uh, business uh, dealings, uh, his his professional uh, endeavors with him uh, when he was uh, vice president and afterwards, for that matter. And Republicans have claimed that this uh, this email uh, means that uh, he's lying, but you know, meeting with someone or having a handshake and photo op with someone does not mean you discussed your, your business with your son. It just means you uh, had a photo op or a handshake. But anyway, the New York Post uh, published this story uh, based on materials from uh, Hunter Biden's alleged laptop. Twitter made the decision to restrict distribution, thinking it was part of a hack and leak operation like what happened during the 2016 election uh, with all of those John Podesta and DNC emails. 24 hours later, they reversed it. But uh, Republicans in the period since have cited these very dubious polls that that they claim show that something like 60 percent of Democrats would have not voted for Joe Biden uh, had they known about either this story or had they known about Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, if you can make sense out of that, uh, you're uh, smarter than I am because it, it doesn't really make much sense. What happened was uh, Republicans for most of the 2020 campaign and before the 2020 campaign really uh, got started. If you remember Donald Trump's first impeachment trial, had hoped that something uh, having to do with Hunter Biden would be enough of a smoking gun uh, October surprise to depress uh, voter turnout uh, for Democrats or throw up a, a nice big cloud of scandal around Joe Biden, which was the circumstance that had led uh, Hillary Clinton to lose to Donald Trump in, in 2016, if you remember the email investigation and that last-minute uh, Comey letter. They were banking on it. And this Hunter Biden hard drive, laptop, email, whatever, whatever was supposed to be their 2020 Comey letter. And 
when it wasn't, uh, they blamed Twitter. Uh, they blamed uh, former intelligence officials who uh, wrote an open letter saying that it uh, bore all the hallmarks of a Russian uh, disinformation operation, a hacking leak like we had seen four years prior, because frankly it did. Uh, and they are operating now in February 2023 under this delusion that had more people known things about Hunter Biden that they would have chosen to vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. And of course, the other thing that they were going on about is that uh, Biden campaign representative had asked Twitter to remove non-consensually posted nude photographs of Hunter Biden. And that's, of course, is Twitter policy. You know, you can't publish non-consensual nude photographs of somebody. <laughs> I don't think anybody listening to us, uh, Andrew, would object to that. So let's talk a little bit about the hearing today. We know that Jim Jordan, the chairman of this House Judiciary Subcommittee, uh, looking into the weaponization of the government, believes in the deep state and believes that there's an anti-GOP bias deep state within the deep state. Has he not understood history? Does he know anything about J. Edgar Hoover? I mean, the FBI has always been, you know, harassing liberals and leftists and, you know, going after so-called communists. Uh, and then you just mentioned Comey helping elect uh, Donald Trump. I mean, what? Wh- where do they get this idea that that FBI agents are are anti-GOP? Well, I'll tell you, if we could somehow uh, contact Mr. Hoover, uh, wherever he uh, is, he would be shocked to find that there are people who believe that his FBI, uh, the bureau, the agency he created, uh, is somehow uh, now an arm of a global leftist project. But if you heard uh, many of the Republican members of this Judiciary Subcommittee and, frankly, some of the uh, Republican lawmakers who were witnesses uh, before this committee today, well, uh, you might come away with that same impression. Uh, the, the testimony today from uh, Senator uh, Chuck Grassley and Senator Ron Johnson was uh, nothing short of unhinged. And it goes back to this idea that you saw in this uh, oversight hearing yesterday that there is a coordinated uh, effort by federal law enforcement, the U.S. intelligence community, uh, the press, Uh, And uh, as Senator Johnson said, charitable foundations, uh, which I guess was his way of trying to say George Soros without saying George Soros, uh, to cause people to not want to vote for Republicans. Uh, it, It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but they believe it, and it's really an article of faith in uh, greater Trump world and uh, the Republican universe that pretty much everyone, uh, everyone is biased against them. Every institution has been captured by, as they put it, the left. 
whatever that means. Well, but Ron Johnson went on to accuse the Department of Justice of persecuting the insurgents that were behind he's the insurrection. Done that too, yeah, he's he's done that too. Uh, I, I wasn't going to get as much into that, but yeah, he he discussed uh, what what many Republican activists and office holders call the two-tiered system of justice, which uh, basically to them means that people who uh, broke into the Capitol and assaulted police officers and violated laws uh, to stop the quadrennial uh, joint session of Congress during which uh, electoral votes were counted and uh, Donald Trump's loss to Joe Biden was made official, it means that those people get arrested and charged with crimes, uh, but other people, unspecified, unnamed people, uh, usually black people, civil rights protesters, uh, Black Lives Matter activists, who have, uh, in Republicans' uh, view, committed unspecified crimes, uh, don't get arrested and charged for those uh, nebulous offenses. So. Or, to put it another way, it, uh, when they say two-tiered system of justice, they mean uh, Donald Trump uh, gets investigated for alleged crimes, uh, but, say, uh, Hillary Clinton is not in prison for all the murders they believe she's committed. And uh, she hasn't committed any murders, but I- I'm saying that to make a point that they they really do believe that the justice system is rigged against them because their enemies are not already in prison. So just in closing, what did Tulsi Gabbard have to say? She's a former Democratic congressman from Hawaii, a member of a cult, and also a a regular on Fox News. Uh, Ms. Gabbard's appearance was a bit strange, uh, but she is a former member of Congress and she wanted to testify, I assume. Her, her statement today uh, really boiled down to uh, free speech is under attack because uh, Hillary Clinton and Mitt Romney said mean things about me. Uh, she is, she like many of the Republicans on that panel who invited her to testify, is carrying around an old grievance from uh, the 2020 election, which is uh, Hillary Clinton uh, suggested that I I believe the word she used was a a Russian asset uh, because uh, Ms. Gabbard frequently parrots uh, the the Kremlin's preferred policy positions, whether it's uh, on Syria or uh, Ukraine or other foreign policy matters, uh, quite frankly. Well, I think it's uh, this is a harbinger of what two more years of this insanity is this this is that coming out of the uh, just out of the gate and this has nothing to do with the functioning of government right this is none none, none at all and and Jim Jordan has actually explicitly said the goal of this uh, this select subcommittee is to um, soften up. Uh, the the ground for uh, 2024 to um, to do what the uh, Republican-led Benghazi committee did to Hillary Clinton uh, in 2016, 
they want to create a, a specter of scandal around uh, Joe Biden. And if not, if not Joe Biden, then Joe Biden's family and hope that that will turn off enough people uh, to depress Democratic turnout and allow uh, a Republican uh, for some, preferably Donald Trump, uh, to pull that inside straight like he did in 2016 and win an electoral college victory. That is the goal. They've said it, and it's going to get weirder from here. So I'd say buckle up. Well, Andrew Feinberg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Anytime. And again, I'll be speaking with Andrew Feinberg, who is the White House correspondent for The Independent, where his latest articles are GOP airs grievances at bizarre Twitter hearing and Trump paid himself almost $1 million from donors since leaving White House. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating the spiking of a story on The Nation magazine's publisher's pro-Putin bias by the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, Kyle Pope who is now embroiled in a controversy having published an article by Jeff Gerth that furthered the theory William Barr and John Durham had demonstrably failed to prove. Everybody loves cowboys and clowns You're everybody's hero for just a little while But when the goodbyes are said the spotlight goes dead there's no one left who cares to hang around to love the cowboys and clowns welcome back i'm ian masters and this is background briefing available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now from the uk is duncan campbell an investigative journalist author consultant and television producer specializing in privacy civil liberties and surveillance issues a recognized forensic expert witness on computers and communication data he has provided specialist testimony in over 100 criminal and civil cases and has given evidence to the house of commons and the european parliament on surveillance legislation his best-known investigations led to major legal clashes with successive British governments. He's the author of a number of books, including Warplan UK, The Unsinkable Aircraft Carrier, On the Record, Interception Capabilities 2000, and his latest book is The World Under Surveillance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Duncan Campbell. Hi, and good evening. Well, thanks for joining us, sir, Duncan. And you were commissioned to write a story for the Columbia Journalism Review, which is highly regarded in journalistic societies since it's sort of both a platform, I guess, to some extent a watchdog on the quality of journalism in the United States. And you were commissioned to do a story on the Nation magazine's coverage of Russia, which a lot of people thought was very pro-Putin and prior to that very pro-Soviet. And uh, the story got spiked by the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, which is now somewhat controversial, very much in the headlines here because of an article by Jeff Gerth that followed along the lines of Bill Barr and his Justice Department investigation of the investigators with this uh, DOJ attorney Durham who came up with nothing. So let's start with you were commissioned to do the story and then what first raised your alarm that they weren't uh, happy with what you were writing? So, um, first of all, I would say that I entirely recognized that in the past, 
the description of Columbia Journalism Review as uh, something of a watchdog of the watchdog of the press, so acclaimed, so described, and certainly when they were I was introduced to them to write about the nation, um, I was thrilled, I was flattered. Um, within six or seven months, it didn't feel like that. And the events of the last uh, week or so with the publication of the series by Girth, essentially taking a, a, a partisan, unchecked, totally bad quality journalism approach on the uh, a look at the US press coverage of Russian interference um, has confirmed my my views about its then editor, its current editor and the way it left. So I was asked to do a big in-depth investigation uh, of the Nation magazine in New York. I um, had already been working on how the Nation had gone badly wrong on a particular story which claimed that the theft of emails by the Russians from the Democratic National Committee uh, and confirmed in stunning detail in the Mueller report wasn't actually a Russian hack at all. It was done by an insider. And a story was written up in the nation by somebody who thought that uh, believed in the victim story around a, a, a poor demo, a DNC worker, Seth Rich, who'd happened to be murdered on the streets of Washington uh, in the run up to the election. So I'd exposed that as a sham and when I was asked to uh, work for Columbia Journalism Review, I was going to go very, very deep, right into the origins of the nation and to earlier controversies in the early days of communism and the time of Stalin, and they're there. And it was for me um, a challenge because the people who value the nation and most of the people who write in it are friends, colleagues, people I and others would value. Um, and I myself had worked for the nation. I, I'd collaborated when I was an editor and then the chair of the publishing company of a British sister publication with similar outlooks. So it's called The New Statesman. So I, I well enough knew the uh, previous editor and publisher of the nation, the, uh, the late Victor Navasky, who'd uh, sadly died earlier this year. Um, and the experience was very strange indeed. Um, uh, I produced a draft and it started uh, being worked on by the managing editor, uh, Betsy Murray. And it seemed to me that very quickly she found herself in a difficult position. Um, and she started behaving very oddly, and things started taking months and months and months. There were repeated interventions that she had to pass on for Mr. Pope. Um, Mr. Pope being the editor and publisher of the... Kyle, Kyle, Pope, Kyle Pope is the editor uh, and publisher of the uh, journalism review within the Graduate Journalism School at Columbia, epicenter of journalism. Um, how did it go wrong? Um, it first of all started with a call that I was asked to have with Mr. Kyle Pope 
um, to talk about conflicts of interest. And I was thinking, well, there is a conflict of interest we should understand here, because I'm going to have to interview Mr. Navasky. And all, he didn't just become the publisher of Nation. Um, he subsequently became a professor at Columbia and was the president of the Journalism Review. So very conflicted, I thought I completely understood the call. And when I spoke to Mr. Pope for just over half an hour, it was all about that. And the penny didn't drop. What I didn't see, although it was in plain sight, if I thought to run background checks on the people I was working for, Mr. Pope and the Journalism Review, was that he had arranged a massive conflict of interest, which he kept secret. The conflict of interest was personal and financial. Um, somehow, we don't know who, who suggested it to whom, but he got together with the principal subject of our story, uh, which is uh, Katrina van den Heuvel. Katrina uh, uh, has spent her career in the nation. Um, she was able to use independent wealth from her family to purchase the nation. Um, and for many years was its editor and is now its publisher. So she has been the dominant figure in the nation for many years. And at the heart of the controversy is that in uh, her early days, as she majored and indeed interned on the nation, she married a uh, professor of Russian studies, uh, the late Stephen F. Cohen, um, and his very close ties to Russia um, were an obvious source of pro-Russian influencing. So Mr. Pope uh, essentially formed an undisclosed, significant and important relationship with the subject uh, or a subject of the story he had commissioned on me to report. And the most appalling thing to my mind, an act of unforgivable dishonesty and lack of candor in anyone in journalism, uh, let alone someone who calls themselves the pinnacle and the watchdog, is that he silently lied to me about that. It could not have been more fundamental. Meanwhile, he wrote nine stories for the nation and formed an institutional compact, bomb, yes. yeah, a yeah. million dollar project on yes. uh, the climate crisis. Yes, so with, with um, the nation and the CJ and the Columbia Journalism Review. That is correct. Um, and it's so it's certainly a worthy project. It's achieved a lot. Um, and if he thought that that was a good thing to do, I would say hurrah. But at that point, it is blindingly obvious to a first year journalism student that you recuse yourself as an editor. If you're going to do that project, that's great. Um, you get out of the way on something where you've got a conflict and you certainly tell people about it. You'd be honest, you'd be transparent. So Columbia Journalism School and Journalism Review staff fell and it, it may fall further from these recent events you described. I literally had to spend a year waiting to get final copy done. Again and again, there were revises and changes. It took an internal time to get it to fact-checking. Um, fact-checking was 
as robust and as good as I would have expected. Um, I was able to deal with it easily. And then we got to the point when my managing editor and working editor, Betsy, told me we're going to publish on a specific date, and that was August the 6th of 2020. So finally, it was going to be done, and this story would be out. Two days before, less than two days before, tracing the forensic record inside the material that Mr. Pope then edited, I see that at eight o'clock in the evening, he and Betsy both sat down and started tearing pieces out of the article. And they did this over a period of two hours. And then the record actually shows that the very last thing that Mr. Pope did was to remove my declaration of a conflict of interest potentially concerning Navasky and put in a truthful statement on this last moment of the last day that he'd been taking money from the nation, that he'd had articles published, and that he'd been involved with Katrina van den Heuvel in this climate change project for the previous 14 months. Uh, I was to say I was shocked as the understatement of my career. And it got worse. The next day, he called in the, the managing editor, according to her emails to me, and said to her that Mr. Professor Cohen was seriously ill, um, and therefore the whole story should be pulled. And I then received a, a second mail, hard on the heels of a first one, tearing shreds out of the article saying, you know, please go elsewhere in effect and, you know, we'll pay you some kill fee. It was as leaden a crash as you could hope never to experience in the case of journalism. But specifically, as you, as the article was pulled apart and they kept cutting stuff, was most of what was being cut was stuff about the nation or under Van den Heuvel and her husband, Stephen Cohen's pro-Russian bias or pro, going back to a pro-Soviet bias. I mean, for example, they removed the passage that you, how you described how Stephen Cohen and Katrina Van den Heuvel travelled to Moscow in 2009 to receive Russia's Order of Friendship Award, which is, of course, is a high honour. That was cut out. What, what else was cut out? Um, the entire guts of how they'd gone wrong on the story, uh, the main story about, no, well, the main story about the DNC hack. Um, and they uh, cut out, they want, uh, Mr. Pope wanted various comments that had been in the fact-checking, been in the drafts for a year uh, about uh, Katrina van den Heuvel. He wanted them removed and he wanted her described in a much more flattering way and the excellence of her achievements added. I haven't bothered to look at what the story would have looked like had these cuts gone through and the changes been made, but uh, uh, it would have been an utterly different story from one where we began, in which the links with Russia were concealed. For example, the, the easy, uh, obvious thing to find out, uh, Katrina van den Heuvel has been a very frequent uh, contributor to the uh, Russian uh, Russia Today outlet, um, which uh, obviously 
pushes out the Putin government line entirely. So the story was, we would say here, gutted. And he didn't just want to stop there on the first thing. You know, he wanted more cuts. He said in a comment he wrote in, this has got to be cut way back. Um, and after a year of editing, complete proper fact checking, um, he then had the absolutely audacity to say that it was too old a story as well. At this point, you just have to look at this person and say, on how many levels is he not a hypocrite? First of all, a year of delay was occasioned by him for in the way that he drove it, held back his deputy, probably put her in a very grave situation of professional concern because she would have known that he was silently lying to me. Um, and uh, failing to realize that the story was absolutely important, even if we got to 2000. It just gets worse. After the tanks went across the border in Ukraine and we all just gasped and feared and were terrified and horrified by Putin's war, I wrote to, Steve, uh, to, to Karl Pope and I said, look, I realize now that Stephen Cohen has died, sadly, um, and that's now a long time in the past. That can't be an issue. Um, and uh, the war in Ukraine is absolutely an issue. It's the issue of the age you have a duty to publish. And he just basically said, oh, no, no, you were so slow getting this story. And anyway, it's too long ago. But at the same time, he took a commission to write a book, which he's never produced, about the whole Trump and the press affair. And he commissioned Mr. Girth, as you said, controversially, to write at great length about events which by the time Mr. Girth has published, of course, are eight years old um, uh, and uh, covered at huge length. So you add in on top of lack of transparency, failure to accuse himself, editorial mismanagement, inconsistency, hypocrisy. And, you know, it looks like he's taken this distinguished magazine for a complete ride to the right and taken its reputation down the tube. And, of course, Jeff Gerth is famous for the Whitewater story that was totally bogus during the early Clinton days and Wen Ho Lee, the alleged Chinese spy, that also was a bogus story. So I guess we'll have to see what happens to whether or not the reputation of the Columbia Journalism Review can be restored. But how can people get the original article that you wrote so that they get an understanding of what was spiked by the Columbia Journalism Review in an effort to protect the reputations of the publishers and owners of the uh, Nation magazine, Katrina Van den Heuvel and her late husband, Stephen Cohen? It, it's out there on a British magazine site called Byline Times. The original article in the exact form in which um, Kyle Pope started savaging it at the last minute. So fully fact-checked, edited, edited very well by Betsy Mauvaire uh, to fit with the review style. So it had all the finishing touches, you know, uh, the proper rewrites, the full fact checks, the bringing up to style, and then the act of destruction came in. So Byline Times has published the original 
as of that exact date, matters stood in 2020. And then it published uh, earlier this week, uh, my account, which I've given to you, of how uh, the editor of the review slow walked this story to destruction um, in the circumstances of a conflict of interest. And I think people and the dean of the journalism school, Professor Cobb, who has been asked several times, including by me, to look at this, uh, seems to have a political uh, axe to grind as well. If nothing else, it calls out for the university to institute an ethics review into the conduct of their editor and to publish the results. Um, do so full, fair, fairly and fearlessly uh, and meet up to the standards that you proclaim you stand for. That's, that's got to be the call made to the university and to the journalism schools. A lot of very decent journalists who came through that place and must be wondering what the hell has gone on? Well, Duncan Campbell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. And we'll publish the link to your original full and complete story at backgroundbriefing.org. And I thank you again. Take care. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Duncan Campbell, investigative journalist, author, consultant, and television producer specializing in privacy, civil liberties, and surveillance issues, a recognized forensic expert on computers and communication data. He's provided specialist testimony in over 100 criminal and civil cases and has given evidence to the House of Commons and the European Parliament on surveillance legislation. His best-known investigations led to major legal clashes with successive British governments. He's the author of a number of books, including War Plan UK, The Unsinkable Aircraft Carrier, On the Record, Interception Capabilities 2000, and his latest book is The World Under Surveillance. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into what the Pentagon means when it says the new deal with the Philippines is for spaces, not bases, when the U.S. already has 750 bases worldwide in 80 countries with 313 in the Asia-Pacific region. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Vine, a professor of anthropology at American University and the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World, Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military Base on Diego Garcia, and most recently, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, now out in paperback. And he is a member of the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition who have just issued a report. New U.S. military bases in the Philippines are a bad idea. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Vine. Ian, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us, David. And what does uh, Lloyd Austin and the Pentagon, what do they mean when they say these new bases in the Philippines are about spaces, not bases? Well, they're trying to downplay the significance of what they're doing. I should just mention that the set of 
positions that you referenced, uh, why US, new US military bases in the Philippines are a bad idea, came out from the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition, which is a group that I'm part of, a transpartisan group of people across the political spectrum who are concerned about the creation of new US military bases in the Philippines and the existence of literally hundreds upon hundreds, 750 roughly US military bases abroad outside the 50 states in Washington, DC. The reason that uh, Lloyd Austin um, is is talking about spaces, not bases, is indeed to, to try to downplay the significance of this new agreement that would see the US military deployed to at least four new military bases in the Philippines on top of five military bases where the US military currently has a presence in the Philippines. And I should say this is on top of uh, more than 300 military bases that the United States already possesses in East Asia surrounding China. And this is all about China. Uh, That's clear. So you say in your article that the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition that there are at least 313 U.S. military base sites in East Asia, including in Japan, South Korea, Guam, and Australia? That's exactly right. And that's the, those come directly from the Pentagon's own figures, and which are notoriously inaccurate and incomplete. So the, the total figure is, is surely higher. In fact, doesn't include the five bases in the Philippines that are currently occupied by U.S. troops. And the reason that the, the coalition I'm a part of, the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition, the reason that we are concerned about this new agreement is that it just accelerates an already very troubling and counterproductive buildup of U.S. military forces in East Asia that, again, uh, have China uh, clearly in, in the target uh, of this buildup. And we feel that this is counterproductive and and very dangerous in a whole range of ways that helps to start by just thinking about how people in the United States or North America would feel if China were to build even a single military base anywhere near uh, the borders of of North America, the United States, for example. The the balloon floating over uh, the continental United States is, is a perfect example. You see the way that that people panicked about this balloon that posed no direct military threat to the United States, regardless of what kind of balloon it was. There was no military threat, but imagine if China were to build a single base near the borders of the United States and the Caribbean, for example, or Mexico. Uh, there would be a call for an immediate military reaction. and. We should not be surprised when China reacts to this latest announcement of new U.S. military bases in the Philippines with a military response. Uh, Building new bases near China's borders only accelerates uh, an escalation of military tensions at a time when we should be acting, we as the, the U.S. government should be acting to tamp down military tensions and build up dialogue. Um, the Overseas Base Realignment and Cl- Closure Coalition is is calling for uh, an increase in, in diplomacy and dialogue to reduce the, the tensions and territorial disputes in East Asia, and uh, rather than ramping up military tensions, which are already at a, at a frightening point uh, that increasingly uh, looks like it could lead us to a direct military confrontation, a war, 
between the United States and China that should be simply unthinkable, given that these are two nuclear-armed powers, and given the species-ending potential of any nuclear war uh, period, let alone between the two most powerful nations on Earth. Well, these new bases in the Philippines are up in the most northern islands, close to Taiwan. And you say that the five bases that already host U.S. troops will see $82 million in infrastructure spending. So how could you have spaces without bases and yet spend $82 million on infrastructure? There is, again, some PR manipulation going on here. The $82 million is going to the five bases where there are already U.S. troops and that we can consider U.S. bases already. They happen to be co-located with Philippines military bases. Uh, the, the spaces, not bases, that Austin referred to uh, are the, the four new ones, which undoubtedly will see large investments of millions of dollars, perhaps billions, uh, potentially. And that that's one of the concerns of, of the OBRAC coalition that I'm a, a part of, that often bases have a tendency of, of starting as small investments, uh, often not even referred to as bases, but just spaces or locations or infrastructure. And they tend to grow in size over time, uh, accumulating uh, investment of U.S. taxpayer dollars. And so one of our concerns is that, that while bases are at the start are often portrayed as, as small uh, pieces of infrastructure, they can grow into much larger investments that, of course, take money that we might otherwise uh, use to better protect the security of the United States and the world, for that matter, um, in a whole variety of ways. Uh, so we have to see the the trade-offs involved in investing millions and uh, on a global level. The United States is currently spending about $80 billion, billion with a B, $80 billion a year on maintaining U.S. military bases and troops outside the United States. That's more than much more than the, the U.S. spends on, on the State Department, on its diplomatic arm. And that is precisely what needs to change. We need to... Uh, abandon this long outdated strategy. It's really a, a World War II era and Cold War era strategy of maintaining hundreds of bases and hundreds of thousands of troops abroad. We need to abandon that strategy, close unnecessary bases abroad while building up the U.S. diplomatic presence and diplomatic forms of engagement, among other forms of engagement with people around the world to reduce the risk of of war and make this world a, a more peaceful place at a time when, of course, there's far too much war from Ukraine to far beyond. And you're talking about $80 billion to support 750 U.S. bases abroad, which is an extraordinary statistic. So recently, both the United States and Australia were alarmed at inroads being made by China into the Solomons. And of course, the capital of the Solomons is in Guadalcanal, the island of which, of course, has resonates in U.S. military history. But what's really going on in these island nations is that they're incredibly poor. I mean, by the way, the U.S. just recently, just only in the, the last couple of weeks, decided to, to have an embassy in the Solomons. So. China is building ports and, and infrastructure, 
And why isn't, instead of U.S. competing for bases, why aren't they sending in USAID? Because the real issue with these island nations, and particularly the Solomons, is incredible poverty. I mean, I don't know if you've been to these islands, but, you know, the beaches are strewn with junk and trash, and people are very, very poor. So it would seem to me that we'd get much more bang for the buck if we improved the living standards of these peoples in these islands as opposed to getting hysterical over the Chinese uh, building bases. Indeed, I, and I have had a chance to do some research in, 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 the, in the Pacific, uh, and I think you're, you're exactly right, and it shows how wrong-headed and counterproductive the U.S. strategy of global engagement, which has so much revolved around the construction of bases and the deployment of military forces, how, how counterproductive and unhelpful that is. The the deal in the in the Solomon Islands uh, showed how overlooked I think people in the Solomons felt, and I'm actually pleased to say that the the establishment of a, a new U.S. embassy in the Solomon Islands is actually a a sign of the direction that the Biden administration in the United States sh should be moving in. We should be building up our diplomatic presence in places like the Solomon Islands and our diplomatic engagement rather than attempting to just build more military bases. Uh, the, it's quite telling that the United States currently has about three times as many military bases outside the United States as it does U.S. embassies, consulates, and missions. This is a reflection of the uh, total the the way in which uh, the the commitment to military force and military presence is totally out of proportion, uh, first of all, to the threats facing the United States and and totally out of proportion to our uh, diplomatic efforts, um, as well as our efforts to alleviate, for example, as you pointed out, global poverty. Uh, that is what the United States needs to double and triple down on. Um, while reducing its military presence globally, which is, is fundamentally ramping up military tensions and making a catastrophic war uh, more likely. Well, just in closing, I mean, the U.S. obviously hasn't learned from its own, quote, success in ending the Cold War because it was soft power that brought down the Berlin Wall. It wasn't the number of missiles that the Soviets and the Americans had pointed at each other, but rather MTV, rock and roll, you name it, anything but military. And we just don't seem to understand the value of U.S. soft power. And, of course, it's getting eroded all the time. I mean, if you look at what's happening in the U.S. government now with these crazy Republicans having these bizarre hearings about insane QAnon stuff, I'm sure the rest of the world is thinking they don't want to necessarily follow that model. Indeed. And I, I think this is a, a moment where uh, the United States needs to show leadership around the problems that are really facing the world, um, beginning with global warming as well as global pandemics. This is a time where that is where we should be, in addition to global hunger and global poverty, this is where the United States can play a leadership role in bringing countries together to address the problems that are facing all of us, uh, while also uh, using diplomacy negotiation to address the real concerns that, that countries like the Philippines have. 
um, they have a legitimate beef with with China over uh, some of the islands that that, that and, and territory that the Philippines rightfully uh, should control. But those concerns uh, and and regional tensions can be dealt with with diplomacy and negotiation and should not be dealt with with this outdated deterrent strategy of just building up military forces and using threat and the threat of force to try to um, solve problems that fundamentally do not have military solutions. So where do you see things uh, going now with, uh, I mean, you mentioned the, the balloon and the hysterical response here in the United States. There's no question that there's an anti-Chinese surge going underway across the country. And the diplomatic visit by Secretary of State Blinken was canceled. So the two superpowers are not talking to each other. That's never a good thing. That was what was going on in the 1980s with the Soviet Union when we almost had a number of occasions where we almost had a nuclear war. Exactly. I mean, I think the Biden administration uh, was relatively muted in its response. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that they did not respond uh, militarily. Um, and they did say that this was uh, the meeting between Blinken and Chinese leaders was postponed. Um, so I very much hope that behind the scenes they are rescheduling that uh, because indeed we need talks. In fact, uh, I, I think uh, a priority for the Biden administration and the rest of President Biden's uh, term in office should be a major summit with, with Xi. Um, and, and other Chinese leaders. Uh, and this could take place hopefully in, in both capitals of, of the China and the United States, because indeed uh, that is what reduced uh, the threat of nuclear war and, and tensions uh, toward the end of the Cold War, um, talks between the leaders of, of the Soviet Union and the United States. And that's precisely what we need now, um, rather than uh, more saber rattling and military base construction and threats of the use of military force. So just in closing, do you see this becoming a political issue? I mean, with the Republicans, you know, during the Cold War, the Democrats were always attacked for being soft on the Soviets, soft on communism. Is there a similar thing happening here? The accusations of being soft on China? I mean, in other words, had Blinken gone ahead with the diplomatic visit to China, don't you think the Republicans would have gone hysterical over that? Well, I, th I think this is uh, something that we should be concerned about. And indeed, that's part of why I think it was a relatively measured response uh, to simply postpone that meeting. Um, but I, I think we can't let uh, folks who are concerned about the rising tensions between China and the United States can't let Republicans get away with what is it at base, fundamentally uh, anti-Chinese and, and sinophobic racist rhetoric about that is that is fear-mongering at its core. There is growing fear-mongering about the Chinese military threat when the Chinese military does not pose the threat to the United States that, for example, the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. Fundamentally, the this kind of fear-mongering really only benefits uh, the military-industrial complex, the the weapons manufacturers who are, are benefiting mightily from astronomical increases to the the Pentagon budget. Um, so I think we we need to push back and find every way possible to show that there is a far smarter, cheaper, 
and ultimately more productive approach to engaging China and to engaging around the world. Well, David Vine, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. It was a pleasure. And I've been speaking with David Vine, who's a professor of anthropology at American University and the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World, Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military Base on Diego Garcia, and most recently, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, now out in paperback. And... He is a member of the Overseas Based Realignment and Closure Coalition who have just issued a report, New U.S. Military Bases in the Philippines Are a Bad Idea. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.